So Lord God, I thank you that one glad morning I'm off our way. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. And Lord God, I pray that right now you would help us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin where we started to end last, uh, last week. I told you about my last conversation with my mom was on the phone as I was driving down Wadsworth Boulevard in the morning coming to work and I called mom at the hospital in New Mexico and she just kept saying to me, Peter, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I, I don't, Peter, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Her heart was failing. Her kidneys were failing. I didn't know it but I suspected it that she was maybe about to die. And two days later on September 6th, she did. I don't know what to do. I don't know, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do. I, I, Peter, I don't know what to do. I feel that way a lot. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And finally, knowing full well what I was saying, I said, Mom, listen to me. You don't have to do anything we prayed and then I remember she thanked me for the remind, reminder and, and I said goodbye mom two days later as the nurse turned her in her hospital bed my mom looked up and said I'm a butterfly and I'm going to fly away and she did She did nothing. Her heart stopped beating. Her kidneys stopped working. She, she, she did nothing. And then she began to do everything. She was filled with love, and love doesn't have to do anything, but constantly chooses to do everything. Love is free. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Why? Because it is the end and the beginning. What the caterpillar calls the end, God calls a butterfly. Mom was metamorphosed. Metamorphosis comes from the Greek word metamorpho, you know, kind of like mighty morphin power rangers. Meta means with and morph means to morph or it has to do with form. In, in the Bible, metamorpho is usually translated transform or transfigure. Be ye not conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, metamorphosed. Last week, we, we talked about mom and we talked about Moses because Moses was transformed. Uh, transfigured. He was metamorphosed on the mountain uh, with Jesus, at the transfiguration of Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration. We noted that, that this was astounding because Moses is an epic failure. He did not do what he intended to do. He tried to save God's people with his passion by murdering an Egyptian and ended up herding sheep for 40 years in the wilderness. 
Then he tried to save God's people with his willpower by obeying the law and ended up wandering in the, uh, around the wilderness with, with, with those people for another 40 years. 40 years until he died on Mount Nebo, looking across the Jordan Valley at the Promised Land, which he would not enter, for as God had told him, he would be gathered to his people, those people that he failed to lead into the Promised Land, but that had now descended into Sheol. Moses was an epic failure. But now he is and always has been and always will be God's unmitigated and eternal success. In three of the Gospels in 2 Peter, Moses appeared in glory talking to Jesus on a mountain in the promised land on the eternal seventh day, God's promised rest. Moses uh, appears in glory talking to the rock that he had smote in anger. And Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are so glorious that Peter, who had walked up the mountain with Jesus, uh, Peter offers in terror to build each one of them a temple or a tabernacle. That's where people put glory, in a, in a temple. Peter thinks he needs to do something, remember? And while he's talking, uh, this voice booms from the glory cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, don't just do something. Sit there. Do nothing. Shabbat. Stop. Rest. See, this is God's promised rest. You don't need to do anything when you realize that everything has been done. You don't need to do anything, but you will go on to do everything. <laughs> I can do all things in Christ Jesus who strengthens me, wrote Paul. Well, as I was saying, Moses was an epic failure, but he is God's unmitigated and eternal success. And it's a good thing that Moses knows he is an epic failure. It's a very good thing that he has, has died. Death is, what is, death is the realization that you can do nothing. It's a good thing he's died, for if he hadn't died and didn't know he was a failure, he couldn't bear the weight of his own glory. That is God's unmitigated and eternal success. see, there's a problem with your ego. <laughs> it's not simply that it's impossible for you to justify your epic failure. More than that, it's impossible for you to justify your unmitigated, eternal, and epic glory, which is God's unmitigated, eternal, and epic success. In other words, no one deserves, no one deserves to be as beautiful and, 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 and loving and kind and good-looking as you truly are. No one deserves that. I'm saying your identity is a gift, not an accomplishment. So if you believe that you are the result of your own choices, that's an accomplishment, right? If you believe that you are the result of your own choices, you cannot choose to be who you truly are. God's choice. And until you believe that you are God's choice and not your own private choices, everything that you do will be an illusion. But not only an illusion, evil. 
Our choice is sin. And God's choice is grace. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In the place where you failed, God reveals himself, which is your true self, and an immeasurable weight of glory. In other words, he's fixing to establish you with himself. And he is, I am. In Psalm 90, Moses prayed, remember, establish the work of our hands. And we saw, holy moly, God totally established the work of Moses' hands. Nothing was, was wasted. That's what we saw last week. He established the work of Moses' hands. But will he establish the work of our hands? Moses entered God's rest. But how do we enter God's rest? So Psalm 95, ready? Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Well, that's the rock that Moses smote and then stood on, then hid in from the glory of God, and then finally spoke to on the mountain in the promised land. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea, that's where Tahom, Sheol, they thought of it. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The word translated maker, this is interesting, is just a prepositional form of the normal Hebrew verb asaw, which means uh, to do. So literally it reads, let us kneel before the Lord, our doer. So if you think that you are what you do, how could you ever come to know yourself or your God, for you are what God has done <laughs> and is doing? Take that thought, put it in your pipe, and smoke it. Verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our doer. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, that's the rebellion, as on the day at Massa, temptation in the wilderness. Remember, that's where the Israelites wanted to know. They wanted to know if God was good. And so God had Moses smite the rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ, and the rock bled a river, a river of life. Meribah is also the second place where everybody doubted. Remember, 40 years later, it's the place where God told Moses to speak to the rock so it would yield its water. But Moses smote the rock and he spoke to the people as if he provided the water and that was Moses' epic failure. When he acted as if he did what God had done. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said there are people who go astray in their heart. Book of Hebrews says always go astray in their heart. There are people that go astray in their, in their heart. Not hearts, but heart. They need a new heart. And they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
mean, Psalm 95 starts out all nice and sweet, right? And we quote it in church. But then it gets nasty. And we only quote it when we want to scare folks into doing something that they don't want to do. Which is ironic, because rest is only doing what you want to do. Rest is what I do when all that I need to do is done. So if I'm commanded to rest, I think to myself, I really, really, really need to rest, and then I try to rest, and then, and then I can't rest. For rest is what I do when all I need to do is done, and I need to rest! I can't. Trying to sleep is the most unrestful thing I do. And for Israel, rest was a command. Exodus 20, verse 8, God tells the Israelites that on the seventh day they will rest, for in six days he has done everything and he rests. Deuteronomy 5, God tells the Israelites to observe the Sabbath because he saved them, which means they don't save themselves. Exodus 31, he says, above all, keep my Sabbath. So you will know that I sanctify you. That is, I make you holy, which means that you don't make you holy. So they're commanded to rest. They're commanded to Sabbath because God creates them, saves them, and justifies them. He makes them like himself. Then God says, everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. That makes you want to try really, 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 really hard to rest, right? That makes you want to try really, really, really hard to do nothing, but the harder you try to do nothing, the more you do something. You know, by the time of Christ, the Pharisees had created thousands of laws about every detail of keeping the Sabbath. Nobody works harder at resting than a Pharisee. In fact, they had come to believe that by keeping the Sabbath, they could get the Messiah, the Lord of the Sabbath, to come. But when the Lord of the Sabbath came, they nailed him to a tree in the garden because he broke the Sabbath. The Sabbath command is a death sentence. And to die is to do nothing. It's a law, but it's also a promise. You will remember the Sabbath, my rest. Well, our works don't produce the Lord of the Sabbath, but the Lord of the Sabbath came to produce our works. Fruit. His fruit. Well, anyway, in Psalm 95, 11, God says, I swore in my wrath, they, that generation that came out of Egypt, shall not enter my rest. And, and they did not enter his rest. It doesn't say never, as some versions translate it, but even if it did say never, um, never means the remainder, the remainder of time, but maybe God's rest is like out, outside of time, beyond time. Well, well, he says they shall not enter, and they did not enter his rest. Moses did not enter his rest. Moses is the one that literally smote the rock. And yet Moses did show up in the promised land on the mountain in glory talking to, to the rock that he had smitten. And scripture is clear that all Israel will be saved and to be saved is to enter God's rest. They did not enter 
But how could there ever be such a thing as God's rest if God's children are to be endlessly in unrest and never ever enter? God's rest is the fact that he creates them. He saves them and he justifies them. And I don't know if you heard about this, but God is a success. Sorry for yelling. This is the question. How do we enter God's rest? Hebrews 3 and 4 quotes Psalm 95, and then we read, let us strive to enter that rest, God's rest. Just this week, I, I noticed, you would think I would have noticed this a long time ago, that it doesn't say strive to rest, because that's an oxymoron, like be doing, not doing. It doesn't say strive to rest, it says strive to enter God's rest. It reads as if God's rest is like a place you could enter, like a house or a tent or a tabernacle or a temple or maybe a promised land or a garden. In other words, it's, it's a reality, a real place. Well, you can't enter God's rest if God's rest doesn't already exist. So what exactly is God's rest? Well, Hebrews 3 and 4 are maybe two of the scariest chapters in all of Scripture, and, and two of the most liberating if you believe them. Hebrews 3, the author, maybe Paul, maybe Apollos, we, we don't know, it doesn't say, but the author quotes the entire last, the scary part, the entire last half of Psalm 95, and then he summarizes it writing this. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, Meribah. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were, unab they were unable to enter because of unbelief, which means lack of faith. That's lack of trust in the word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, that's, that's the, also, I think, the promise. Good news is euangelia in Greek, and the promise is epilong, ep, eplongalia. The promise, the, the gospel, came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed we who have faith enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's Israel, and I think maybe us. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, yada, 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 yada. You know the verse. So what is God's rest? Well, verse 3 reveals that it's something that has existed since the foundation of the world, <laughs> which we know is also the foundation of space and time. Verse 4 is described as the seventh day, the seventh day which existed on or before the first day, right? Because it's existed since the foundation of space and time. This is the seventh day, Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. His, his rest is all that he has done, his finished work. So, so we couldn't enter his rest if his works were unfinished. All scripture testifies. And every week we're commanded to testify that God's work is finished. And that the seventh day is not like the other six days. It's sometimes pictured as an eighth day, which is an endless seventh day. It has no end because it's the presence of the end, which is also the beginning. It's not mutable, it's immutable. It's not perishable, it's imperishable. It's not temporal, that is subject to chronological time. It's eternal. In Scripture, eternal usually means of the age and, and usually refers to of God's age, which is that seventh day. Seventh day looks something like, like this. I keep showing you this picture for a reason. <laughs> And I'll show you some other pictures that you've seen, seen before. We exist, or we think we exist in time, on, on this timeline. But we all dream about eternity. That's why we go to Back to the Future movies and stuff like that. We dream about eternity. The seventh day, when we're no longer prisoners of time, but now masters of, of time. For the last 200 years or so, mad scientists have told us that the seventh day, God's promised rest, can't exist. Why? Because they say all there is is space and time, chronological time. But now physicists tell us that space and time are actually something of an illusion uh, dependent on whatever is outside of time and also dependent on something utterly mysterious inside of every human being, something that they refer to as consciousness. And the Bible refers to as spirit. Well, God's rest has always been and will always be, and God's rest is all that is, for all that is, is what God has done. And so this is pretty wild. Hebrews 4.3 says that his works were finished from the foundation of the world, and his works 
The Bible is clear about this. His works are all that is. And check this out. Let me say it one more time. His works were finished from the foundation of the world, and his works are all that is, and you are his work. Now, the whole Bible testifies to this. However, none of us really believe this for several reasons. For one, we're children of the Enlightenment, which I like to call the Endarkenment. It, it taught us that space and time is all that there is. And most of us are also children of the modern Western church, which has twisted scripture to make it reasonable to children of the Enlightenment. And so we read the Bible and we think that statements about the seventh day are just metaphors. When in fact everything that we experience in this age, this space and time, everything we experience here in space and time is a metaphor for the seventh day. God's rest. For instance, the New Jerusalem is not a metaphor. <laughs> the old Jerusalem is a metaphor for the new. For thousands of years, sinful people have been trying to build Jerusalem, which means city of peace, and it is the most violent city on the face of this earth. In the Revelation, John sees it descending new from heaven, not made by human hands. It is the presence of God's rest. And check this out. The new Jerusalem is older. It's newer, but it's also older than the old Jerusalem. In fact, Paul writes that it is our mother, and yet the new Jerusalem is constructed of us, the, the new us. Do you see what that means? That means that Moses transfigured on the mountain is older and younger than the Moses that was wandering through the wilderness. That means that you are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. I think that means that when Jesus said, it is finished, as he hung on the tree in the garden at the edge of the sixth and the seventh day, he meant you are finished. And all things are finished with you. He's the word of God through whom all things were made and without him was not anything made that was made. So God's rest already exists. And God's rest is everything that's anything. In other words, God's rest is reality. <laughs> so, what is unrest? Well, it would have to be like a lack of reality. Like the manifestation of a lie. God is good, and all that God made is good, and, and it's all been made. So what is evil? What is evil except that which God did not make, like something unfinished in time, and yet forever finished in eternity? So where's evil? Well, evil is on this timeline. And where's hell? Well, if you define hell as a place of evil, 
It's also on this timeline. And where's heaven? Well, heaven is everywhere. Heaven is everywhere that's anywhere. And it's, it's like it's at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's all around this timeline. You can also picture this timeline as a space. Actually, it's like an explosion of space-time in eternity, or I am, that is, that is God. We think of the Big Bang as an explosion of something and nothing. But Scripture would picture it as an explosion of nothing in the something that is God, almost like a womb in God. It's the expansion of the void of space-time in which God will reveal the glory of eternity. It's the expansion of the dark in which God will reveal the light. The early church didn't think of evil, or most of the church fathers didn't think of evil as a, as a substance, but an absence that infects the substance. Like a shadow in the light. Like a lie in the truth. Like death in a world of life. Like lostness along the way. Like a lust for I am not that infects who I am. Scripture says that this whole world is under the power of the evil one. So this world is less like something floating in nothing, but more like a big ball of nothing floating in the something that is somehow God, floating in the heavens. More like hell floating in heaven. But one day, the seventh day, the earth will be filled with glory. That's what Scripture says. One day this earth will be filled with glory just as Moses was filled with glory on that mountain. See, there is evil in this world. And there is evil in me. In fact, all my works, at least the ones I attribute solely to me, are evil and an illusion. However, God will establish the work of my hands as he established the work of Moses' hands because where sin increased, grace will abound all the more. My old man will reveal my new man, the eternal man. The me that I create, or I think I create, reveals the me that God has created. And then I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I will love my neighbor as myself, not because I have to, but because I want to. I will love in freedom. I will love because God has become my nature. God is love, and love is God, and love will be my nature. 2 Peter 1.4, through his promises, that's his word spoken, right? Through his promises, we are to become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. So anyway, God's rest is already accomplished, and God's rest is everything that's anything. I enter God's rest because God's rest <sighs> enters me. The word of God is spoken into the void that I thought was me. And when I enter God's rest, because God's rest has entered me, I'll know that it is finished. I'll know that all that needs to be done has already been done, so all I can do is what God is doing and has done. So anything that I do in anxiety, fear, or shame is just an illusion, a stupid, evil illusion. 
I'm not the creator. It's pretty much all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not the creator. But I am the recreator. The recreator. Did you know that's where we get our word recreation? I do what God has done in freedom. In other words, the seventh day is a holiday. It's a holy day. I cannot work, but I will play. Little children don't do because it needs to be done. Little children do because they see that it has already been done. They mow the lawn with toy mowers. They make pretend dinners with easy bake ovens. Not because it needs to be done, but because it has been done. And they rejoice in the thought that their parents might one day let them help with dinner and maybe even help mow the lawn. Now that goes away at some point, but that's a picture of what could be. Heaven is not doing nothing, but doing everything without the illusion of independence, isolation, separation, anxiety, shame, and fear. So, so entering God's rest is constant freedom to be who you truly are. It's doing what you want and wanting what you do. It's constant forgiveness. It's constantly letting things be because everything that be is good. Everything that is, is, is good. It's constant love. It's constant sacrifice. It's constantly losing your life and finding it. It's eternal life. It's and it is finished. And yet, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist if there is a place where some of God's work is endlessly unfinished. In what people like to call hell. If there is a place where some of God's children are endlessly unlike him, endlessly not made in his image, but suffer endless torments, then, then God's rest doesn't exist. So then how are we to enter it? We can't. We can't enter it if it doesn't exist. In fact, we can't truly enter it even if we only think it doesn't exist. In other words, if we don't have faith, if we don't believe that it exists. Heaven is the absolute conquest of our Father's love. But if you don't trust the Father's love, if you don't believe the Father's love, you will not enjoy the party. Even if it's happening all around you, your Father's love will burn and you will long to run from the party and hide in the outer darkness like the older brother, remember, that ran from his father's party of grace, thrown for his younger prodigal brother. He ran and he hid in a dark field. You know what that field is called? Sheol. But then do you remember the father went out and found him? and stood with him in the field? You see, Sheol cannot last forever without end, but why would you want it to last at all? Satan's dirtiest trick is to get people to fear that for which they are commanded to hope. The absolute conquest of amazing grace. To enter God's rest, you must trust, you must believe that there is such a thing as God's rest. And to trust that there is such a thing as God's rest is to die. One glad morning, 
When this age is over, I'll fly away. When I die, when do you die? To trust that there is no such thing as God's rest is to die to your ego. My body dies when all it can do is nothing. My ego dies when I come to believe that everything that's anything is grace. My ego dies when I finally realize that I have no reason to boast. My ego dies as I enter God's rest, for I realize that everything that's anything has been done, and so there's nothing I need to do or even can do that grace has not already done. The good is not dependent on me. I am utterly dependent on the good. I don't even do the good, except for that the good is constantly doing me. God alone is, is good. I don't create the new Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem gives birth to me. It's just like Paul said, the Jerusalem above is our mother. The dirtiest trick of the devil is to convince us that God's rest is dependent on us. When in fact we are entirely dependent on God's rest. Sin is thinking that God's rest is dependent on me, and faith is trusting that I am dependent on God's rest. Faith is the moment that eternity touches time, and time takes on its eternal meaning. Faith is now. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, now, faith is not simply knowing about the good in your head, but being known by the good in your heart. Faith is the new heart that God promised to Israel. Faith is not a law written on a heart of stone. Faith is the lifeblood that flows through a heart of flesh. Faith is a miracle. It's not something I do, except that it has been done to me, faith is a miracle. It's entering God's rest, for God's rest has entered me. Faith is a miracle. It comes from outside of me. Faith is a word spoken into me, waking me from the illusion of my own control. Just like a person is, is wakened from a bad dream. Dorothy, 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 waking to the realization that there's no place like home. No place like home. No place like home. Didn't know that before, but there's no place like home. Faith is not a good deed I do, but the revelation that the good has been done to me and it's finished. Faith is the word of God having found a place in me. We talk about this stuff at Wednesday at staff when we have our Bible say, and this Wednesday Kathleen said, hey, that reminds me of a story one of the stories most dear to me, and then she told this remarkable story. I said, could I share that on Sunday? And she said, yeah. And I said, would you even maybe write it out for me? She said, sure. And so anyway, this is what she said. She said, and then she wrote this down. Late one evening, she said, when I was a, a chaplain, I was called on to see an 89-year-old Catholic woman with a brain bleed and preparing to die. The staff couldn't calm her down. In other words, she was being bad. <laughs> 
The staff couldn't calm her down. Despite her pain and exhaustion, she was sitting up in bed with bloodshot eyes, frantically rocking back and forth, mumbling, unwilling to rest. Uh, Kathleen called it a frenzied vigil, for she kept repeating this mantra, I have things to do, I have things to do, I have things to do, I have things to do. Finally and, and quietly, Kathleen inquired, honey, what do you need to do? And at that, the woman suddenly stopped. She, she looked at Kathleen for the first time, and with this clear intensity, she said, good things! After a moment, Kathleen said, oh, um, honey, do you think that you have to do more good things to get into heaven? She said the old woman nodded. And then Kathleen spoke the word. She read the word written. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Titus 3.5. Ephesians 2.8. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. That's God's doing. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. That is the death of the ego. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, already created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. That means that you cannot create yourself. You can only be yourself now. <laughs> and you see, the ego hates now. The ego needs a past. I did this, I did that, I did, and the ego needs a future, and I'm gonna blah, 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 blah. Eternity is the death of the ego. I think that's the torment of, of eternity on the ego. You, you cannot create yourself. You can only be yourself now, today, when you hear his voice. Kathleen said she watched as the old woman's body began to change. She, she leaned back. Her, her breathing slowed. That frenzied look went out of her eyes, and she began to focus. She entered God's rest. Not what she could do, but what God has done. She died to herself before her body died. So soon after, when her body did die, she had no more dying to do. I think she died the second death. <laughs> she had no more dying to do, and so she just skipped Sheol and went straight away to the great banquet and has that has no end, for, for it is the end and the beginning. So, how do we enter God's rest? Well, we must trust that there is such a thing as God's rest, which means that you must die to your ego. Which cannot be the work of your ego. <laughs> because then you'd be all proud of your rest <laughs> and your humility and your faith. 
And faith is a miracle. So, so we must trust that there is, must have faith that there is such a thing, which means we must try to our own ego, which means at best we can subject ourselves to a miracle. Maybe we can subject ourselves to the judgment of God, the Word of God, which is living and active, sharper than a two-edged knife, which cuts to the division of our, our heart and our spirit, our, cuts out our old hearts of stone and, and gives us faith. And you see, that's what Psalm 95 is about. It's a call to worship. Psalm 95, verse 1. Come, let us sing to the Lord, the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come into his presence with thanksgiving and shouts of praise, joyful songs of praise. Worship is the sacrifice of praise. You see, when you praise, you sacrifice your ego. Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our doer. God is your doer. That means that you're not your own doer. That's the judgment. Isn't that shocking? It's right there at the start of the Bible. The creator, that's the judgment. God is your doer, that's the judgment. That's the judgment that kills you and sets you free to do all things. That's the judgment that finishes you as you in, in the very image of God. That's the judgment that cuts out the heart of stone and gives you a new one. Even Jesus from the bosom of the Father. That's the judgment that creates faith in God who is relentless love. And this is that judgment. At the beginning of the sixth day, the Lord of the Sabbath took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, smitten for you. Take and eat. Out of it flows a river. Uh, this is the cup in my covenant. Uh, I mean, uh, this, is the, this is the covenant, and this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it. All of you, what you took, I give, and I have always given. People, get ready. There's a train that's coming. Don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is faith to hear those diesels humming. Can't buy no ticket, you just praise the Lord. Dark up is wine, like up is juice. See how it works? You were singing about what he has done, which makes you forget about what you need to do. And that's the death of your ego. And it's then that the miracle happens. You begin to do everything in a new way. You do it from rest, from God's rest. You do it in faith. Faith in grace and by grace. And you fly away. <laughs> During this message, I 
I realized, because Susan says this to me, she helps me, I need her. She said, you were yelling again. And um, people say, why is he yelling? And I'm not yelling at you, I'm yelling at me, because I have trouble believing this. And the last, uh, the, la the last two psalms, I just felt like God was really talking to me, because I, I struggle with unrest. And I struggle with unrest, I think, because I just go, God, will you establish the work of my hands, or does this just mean nothing? And so I got up yesterday morning, and I just wrote this down, because I go, I think this is what God is saying to me. Maybe it's saying, he's saying it to you. To sum up the last two weeks, children of Israel, God is at rest, so you can rest. I think I honestly think that's maybe the thing that most helps me most. When I'm really stressed, I just ask myself, is God worried? And I'm like, no, he's not worried. Okay, so stop it. Just stop it. He's not worried. God is at rest so you can rest. All that you do can be done from rest. For God not only will, but already has established the work of your hands. So, do what you do without anxiety over what will be done. But because of what's been done, do all that you do in freedom, with joy. Paint, even though no one seems to see. Sing, even if you think that no one is listening. Preach the gospel even when no one seems to understand. Do your job even if no one says thank you. Children of God, build castles in the sand. For God will establish the work of your hands. In truth, he already has. Eternity is the mother of all your time. For God has filled it, is filling it, and will fill it with himself. I am that I am. <laughs> that's the judgment, and that's the gospel, and that's our, our hope.